right, good morning. My name is Dan Blackwell. I serve in a few different places, mainly finance, uh, guest services on Sunday, and redemption communities. Today's text will be from Colossians 1, 15 through 23, and it's page 572 in your blue Bible. Please remember we are reading the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him things hold together, all, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, <clears throat> that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased. Sorry, I'm losing my place here. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Dan. Good morning. How are we doing? Good. Come on. How are we doing? We have AC. We're great. The youth is in the front row. They wanted to take over the mic and tell you they're selling baked goods, so make sure you uh, go buy their baked goods so they can go to camp in Point Loma with the other nine redemption congregations. So uh, bless the youth. There you go, Owen. I gave you your shout out. But I get to unpack this uh, passage in Colossians. So if you're new to church, new to redemption, what we do is we tend to just open up a book of the Bible and we kind of piece it up based the best we can. And we walk through that book until we get it. And we ask God to meet us through that book. And that's what we're asking in Colossians. This is going to be a two month project to get through the book of Colossians. Then come summer, July, beginning of July, we're going to jump into first Samuel way back here. And we're going to walk through first Samuel for the rest of the year. So we are in Colossians. We believe this is the Word of God. This is God breathed. This is God inspired. This is God authoritative. This is God speaking to us through a fallen sinful man right now in this moment through the book of Colossians. And just to catch you up, what is the book of Colossians? It's a letter. It's just an old school letter like someone sent off. The guy they sent it off was a guy named Apostle Paul. He was in prison. He was the main guy responsible uh, for the start of the New Testament church after Jesus ascended and went back to uh, sit on his throne as the king. And Paul is in prison because he's making people mad because he keeps, keeps standing up, preaching the gospel, the good news that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and he's the king of the universe. And then people hear him and some people actually believe him and take what he says and says, I'm going to base my entire life off that. And that's what happened in this. Epaphras is a guy that just heard Paul preach the gospel. And he goes back to his hometown of Colossae and he starts to tell people, hey, I met this guy, Paul, who told me about Jesus. And people start to hear the gospel. And in that moment, a church is born, a family of God, a new people of God under faith in Jesus Christ now are formed. And Paul's hearing the report of the church at Colossae, and he's sending a letter back to encourage them, but also to sort of correct them. Because Colossae has the same issues we still have today. 
You've got sort of two veins of thought in the sort of religious spiritual realm. You've got the overly religious legalistic. So you've got Jewish people who are saying the way to be the best Jewish Christian follower of Jesus is to be in for Jesus, but also to do this, this, this. You need to be circumcised. You need to read this way. You need to use this version. You need to give this much money. You need to do this, 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 this. Sort of an overzealous legalism. And then you've got this polytheistic, just the culture out in Rome, many gods. Jesus now is sort of one of my favorite books of all time, or movies of all time, Book of Eli, Denzel Washington, just great. But at the, it's, he's taking the Old Testament. It's an apocalyptic world. And he's trying to save the Old Testament called the Book of Eli. And he's bringing it. So humanity has this treasured book for the rest of their existence. And the very end of the movie is he takes the book of Eli and he puts it on the shelf. And it's right next to Socrates and Muhammad as a way to say, Jesus is just one of the many great options. We don't want to lose another great option, but we all want to put him on the same shelf. And Colossi is in danger of putting Jesus on the same shelf as everyone or adding too much religion to what Jesus has called us to. So Paul sends this letter. Now, I don't know your personality. I always kind of have said this. I'm always like low-grade, just furious inside that I kind of have to like, all right, chill, Josh. He, he didn't mean that. She didn't chill, Josh. That's your kid. You love that, that kid right there. Chill. <laughs> Paul could have like jumped right into it. Like, let's get after this and fix these people. That's not what he starts with a prayer. Thank God for your conversion. Thank God for the gospel. Thank God I'm praying this. You grow in the knowledge of God. You grow this. Gosh, praise. I love you, church. And then he goes to this, which is interesting. What they think is happening in verse 15 through verse 20 is Paul is reciting a hymn that has begun to circulate in the churches. So Jesus died, rose again, was on earth 40 days, ascended, and then people start talking about it. And even songs getting written. And some people think, most people think verse 15 through verse 20 is this hymn that's been in place telling people about Jesus. So Paul wants to correct them, fix them. Verse 21 down here says, or look at verse 23. Here's sort of, if I had to describe Paul's angst. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. I don't want you to shift from the hope of the gospel. The way he could have gone at that is to point out all the flaws in this line of thought, this religious leader. This is why overzealous, legalistic Judaism is not the way to go. Instead, he's like, I'm going to sing a song. I'm going to write a song. I'm going to write a hymn. I'm going to give them a poem, and it's about one person. It is about Jesus Christ. That's what they need. They need a big view of Jesus Christ. There's a story of D.L. Moody old school theologian, 1893, I think is the time, but there's having this world religious gathering in Chicago. All the world religions get to come, sort of present their case. Here's why I think Sikh is the way to be. Here's why I think Buddhism is. Here's what it is. Here's what it is. And D.L. Moody's this prominent Christian figure, and he's got all these people in the, behind him saying, hey, here's how you need to handle this moment. And they all basically say something along the lines of, you need to get up and debate. Get up and debate. Go after these guys and girls and show them why they're wrong. He's like, I'm not going to do that. The gospel does not need me to stand up for it. The gospel is powerful. Jesus is powerful. And the world, he said, is Jesus is preeminent, which we see in this. He's supreme. He's the most important being in the universe. I just need to put Jesus on display. So he rents out these theaters and all these places. So when all these world religions are town, he just gets up time and time again and tells people about Jesus. And the story's told thousands get converted. And maybe the greatest evangelistic tool that Chicago has ever seen. Why? Because he did what Paul did. 
he got up and he said, hey, let's talk about Jesus. I'll talk to you about some issues, but first you need to get 100% clear on who Jesus is. And that's what we're going to see in this passage is who is Jesus? In preparing for this, I did something I haven't done. I've been a pastor now 10 years or so. I've never looked at Jesus' wiki page. So I wanted to like, what does Wikipedia, which is the online equivalent of where you get all knowledge, here's what <laughs> is said about Jesus. There's this timeline, B.C. to 30, 33. Also referred to as Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus Christ. He was a first century Jewish preacher, religious leader. He's the central figure in Christianity, the world's largest religion, important figure in Islam. He's a prophet for my Islamic friends. Most Christians believe he is the incarnation of God, the Son, and the awaited Messiah, the Christ, prophesied in the Hebrew Bible. Who is Jesus? If you open up the Bible and just look for sections where it's like so laser focused on who Jesus is, Interestingly, you don't find a lot of spots where it's just stopped and like, this is Jesus. Let's look at him. You get John 1 where he says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And you get this beautiful little unpacking of Jesus being the fle- God in the flesh now before us. Hebrews 1, it says something like, he is the exact imprint and nature of God. He is the radiance of God the Father. But I think, and a lot of people would agree, the greatest description of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible is Colossians 1, verse 15 through verse 20. Who is Jesus? For you that know Jesus and love Jesus, you need to be reminded of who Jesus is. For those of you that are here, maybe invited, you're checking this out, you're kind of figuring out, what do I think about all this? What are my answers to life's biggest questions? If you want to know who Jesus is, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20, we'll cover the last couple verses too, is who Jesus is. Is And we all need to look up and see Jesus in all his beauty and all his glory and all his might. Whether you're a college kid, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you're retired and just figuring out what this new stage is, what we need is Jesus. So that's what I want to pray for. And then we're going to dive in and just look at this beautiful passage. Would you pray with me? Father, help us as we come to your word yet again to just see Jesus. Whether we can articulate that or not is what we need. It's what we all need. It doesn't mean we don't need other things, but supremely what we need is Jesus. So Jesus, show up once again through your word, by your spirit, in this place, specifically for these people, these men and women who are trying to follow you, trying to figure out what they think of you. Jesus, be on display. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So a very simple big idea. What's the big idea of this particular section? Jesus is supreme in everything. Where do I get that uh, verse? Just to show you, go to verse uh, 18. We'll cover this, but in the middle there it says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he, Jesus, might be preeminent. What does preeminent mean? I don't use that language often. I looked it up. I'm like, what does preeminent mean? It means supreme, most important. So what is Jesus? He's the most supreme being in the universe. He is supreme in everything. And specifically, Paul then breaks this. This song is sort of in two parts. So if you look verse 15 to verse 17, it's talking about Jesus in creation. Like the world being made, Jesus is supreme. And then he flips the page. And then verse 18, he starts to talk about this world we live in that's broken, that needs saving, that needs help. Jesus is supreme in redemption, in restoring, in fixing, in healing this broken world. And then at the end, he turns to the church and says, hey, Colossae, 
Jesus is supreme for us in this moment too. So that's what we're going to do. If you're not a note taker, I encourage you to be a note taker for this one Sunday because it's a lot about Jesus and it's truths we all need to know. So here's the first truth Paul gives us in this section. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's supreme in creation. He is the image of the invisible God. Where do I see that? It's the very first thing Paul says in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. He makes the invisible God visible. Who does that? Jesus. Why? Because he's the image of God. What's that word image? It's simply icon. You sort of look through an icon to see something else. Two times in the Bible, God talks about the image of God. The first time's in Genesis 1. He creates man and woman, Adam and Eve. And he says he made them in his image, made them in his image to reflect and to bear the image of God, the creator. And now in this, how is it describing Jesus? Jesus is not made in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. So here's the most important thing about all of us. When we think about God, what do we picture? What do we feel? What's sort of our disposition? As we think and ponder and worship and reflect on God, whatever comes into our mind, comes into our heart, stirs inside of us, or does not stir, that is foundational to who you are as a person. Who is God? Paul would say, hey, church, before I get into all these issues, just remember, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. I have a very poor image of God uh, from a Bible that I bought my kids, which I thought, I'm going to be a great dad here. I'm going to buy them this Bible, this Lego Bible. And it's funny, here's the image of God in the Bible. And my kids would be like, God's mad a lot. And I'm like, you're right. If that's the vision of God I have, like that doesn't sit well with me. And wherever you turn in this Lego Bible, that's God. Whether he's like holding a baby, his eyebrows are like, or he's burning down Sodom and Gomorrah. He's like, it's like, whoa, chill. Paul wants the church and us to know, do you want an image of God? The only place to get it accurately, fully, completely is going to Jesus Christ, the icon, the exact image of God. So church, we just remember, when we sing to Jesus, when we long for Jesus, when we pray to Jesus, we are praying to God because he is the image of the invisible God. And he's here for us. That's good truth. What's the second thing Paul wants the church to know? This one's a little more uh, loaded. He's the image of the invisible God. Very next section says he is the firstborn of all creation. Pause right there. So now Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and he's the firstborn of all creation. So just full disclosure, if you uh, come from a Jehovah's Witness background, a Mormon background, you have friends or family in that vein, this passage right here is going to be completely different than how they would teach this passage. Because our Jehovah's Witness friends, our Mormon friends, believe that Jesus is a created being. He's not God the creator. He is part of creation. He's the best part of creation. Like Jehovah's Witnesses take this, pa- this exact passage right here, and here's sort of what they do with it. Verse 15, they would say this. He is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. In agreement there. Because by means of him, this is where they start to change the language. All other things were created by him. All other things were created for him. All 
other things. Instead of all things, because that would include Jesus, they say all other things. So Jesus is sort of the firstborn, the first creational good of God, and then he was a part of then joining in. You see, like, and if you're like me, like, intelligence kind of middle of the road, you're like, I don't know if I could go to bat with that. It's hard. I'll just say firstborn generally means what we, I think we think it means, first to be born. <laughs> Who's my firstborn? It's Elijah. Who's my parents' firstborn? It's me. That's generally what we think. The Jewish faith and tradition has a different way to use firstborn. And even in this, if we're just going to say first is first to be born, I just want to show you here. Verse 15 says he's the firstborn of all creation. Okay, let's fast forward. Go down to verse 18. Here's the second time Paul uses that same word. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Pause right there. So if what Paul wants us to understand is Jesus is the first in order, he's already running into issues just based off the two times he used it here. So let's leave the firstborn of creation aside. Firstborn among the dead. Jesus wasn't the first to be risen from the grave. So the order piece, we got Lazarus. Lazarus is like, hey, I'm the firstborn. I was before you. And then the widow's son. All these people were raised from the dead. There's other firstborn from the dead. So Jesus doesn't even fit the mold there. So what's he mean? It's what the Jewish people would mean. Psalm says, I will make him my firstborn. I will exalt him higher than all the kings of the earth. Firstborn is like a rank superiority. Who's your firstborn? It's my favorite. Is that your first firstborn? Depends on the family. But who's your favorite? What Paul is saying is Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He's not the favorite in all that's been created, but as creation looks out, it wants to know who should be supreme, who should be highest, who should be the top, who is the priority? Paul says he is the firstborn. He's the highest. He's superior. He's most important. He is the firstborn of all creation, and he's close to us, his church. He's the image of the invisible God. You want to know God? See Jesus. You want to know what's most important in this world? It's Jesus. He is the firstborn, and we get to know him. So Paul is just laying up all these beautiful truths about Jesus for this church, and then he goes on to say this. Thirdly, he is also the creator. Third point here is he is the creator, sustainer, and goal of all things. Verse 16, let's read this together. He is, or um, verse 16, my bad. For by him all things were created. Who's the by him? That's Jesus. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Pause right there. If you needed more confirmation that Jesus being firstborn did not mean he was the first created, the very next verse, verse 16, Paul says, For by him, Jesus, all things were created. So he's not included in what he created. By him, he created all things. He created, he sustains, and he is the end goal of all creation. I mean, what's the point of all this? It's Jesus. And I know that's, a, like, that's a, as churchy a word as you can use. I get it. But what's the other option? You take God off the table and just say, let science kind of dictate. And what's science up to? And I have a math degree. I love science. But what's the end goal of all that? Jesus would say, I created all things. I sustain all things. And I am the end goal of all things. I created all of this. By Jesus, all things were created. How much did you create, Jesus? Everything in heaven, 
and on earth. Visible, invisible. Whether thrones, America, Ukraine, Russia, the Roman Empire, or dominions, or rulers, or authorities, all things were created by Jesus. That's who we serve. All things were created by him. We don't serve a God that's just here to give us sort of good feelings. We serve a God who created all things. Like I was just given this, I, I'm a total yard sale guy. It's the worst quality I have, if you ask my wife. It's like the only real bad quality I have is I love yard sales and I love stuff. And I just have that look, like, you look like a guy that collects too much stuff. And this older guy on my street is like, hey, I got some stuff for you. And it's this big old box, uh, box of Jacques Cousteau, like old school encyclopedias about ocean exploration. I'm like, definitely, I'm in. I need it. <laughs> I've been praying about that exact thing. But I'm like, this is a guy who dedicated his entire life to studying the ocean. And if you had to like stack up his knowledge of the ocean and the actual ocean, it's like a f- sliver of a fingernail. Jacques Cousteau knows about the ocean that he's devoted his entire life to. Then you go and research, well, how much has collect all the minds, all the thoughts, all the resources, all the countries, all the scientists, how much have we actually dove into in understanding the ocean? It's at about 4% of the ocean we've seen and explored and been able to dissect, which means we haven't touched much of it. It's a few fingernail worths of knowledge we have about the ocean. And then you think about the universe. How much of the universe do we know? And no is sort of a loose term because no simply means we can look through technology and see. We haven't touched much. With our robots, we've touched a few other places. With our feet, we've touched this place and the moon. Elon Musk, Lord help him, he wants to get us to Mars. But then beyond that, how much have we touched? It's similar. It's like 96% of the universe is beyond our ability to ever see. Why? Because by him all things were created. Why did he make such a big, giant, useless universe? Well, because it's not about us. This world was not created for us. My wife got saved a little later, I mean, after high school, around 20. And one of the first books she read was a guy by Rick Warren wrote a book, The Purpose Driven Life. And it's famous, I think it's almost as best-selling as, it's like number two to the Bible. And his first line is simple. It simply says, it is not about you. And Aubrey read it and was like, that's what I've been missing. I've made this all about me, which we all do. But then if you just leave it at that, it's not about you. Well, I need it to be about something or someone. Jesus would say, it's about me. All things were created for me. This is how one of my favorite pastors says it, John Piper. He says, the Bible is crystal clear about this. The heavens declare the glory of God. If someone asks, if the earth is only inhabited, is the only inhabited planet, and man is the only rational inhabitant among the stars, why is there such a large and empty universe? Piper's answer is this. It is not about us. It's about God. And that is an understatement. God created us to know him and love him and show him. And he has given us a hint of what he's like with the universe. All things created by him, through him, for him. And I just love this line. Some of us need to write this down and just kind of camp out on it a lot. Verse 17. How else is Jesus described when relating to creation? He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Like, who in your life could you say that about any domain of their life? 
without that person, that entire thing would fall apart. Like, hopefully a good parent, like a family, is being held together by a good parent. A good marriage, a, a good union there. But like a company, like, without this person, it would all go away. But Jesus says about the entire universe, I hold all things together. Another verse says, by the power of his word, all things are being held together by Jesus. I was reading this interesting article. You might not think it's interesting, but stained glass is a big business right now. I was like, what other careers could I do? Stained glass restoration, $2,000 a square foot. Jack will find this interesting. Because stained glass in all these old churches are starting to not last. And it's not the glass. The glass is fine. The glass could go on and on and on. It's the lead in between that holds it all together is crumbling and failing. So all these churches are hiring these people and paying them $2,000 per square foot to restore this stained glass because the thing that was holding it all together is failing. Christian, you might be the only person in all your domains that knows the person that is holding all things together by the power of his word. He sustains it all. That's who we serve. So as Paul has all these things like, I could address this, I could address this. Before I get there, I just want people to know, Jesus is God. He created all things, by all things, everything came through him, and all, for all things, everything is for him, and he sustains everything by the word of his power. That is good news. That's who we get to serve. And then Paul continues on, but now it sort of shifts gears, or sort of shifts chapters before that sort of a creation in general what is jesus doing in creation he is supreme over creation but what about my current reality that is hard this world that is hard our ukrainian brothers and sisters what is jesus doing in the brokenness of the world that we currently live in this is where paul now shifts and he's going to say jesus is supreme in creation but he's also supreme in new creation he's not just a good artist good architect good engineer who created all things and he's very powerful holding it together. He's intimately involved with the world right now as it is. And this is how Paul's going to describe. Let's read verse 18 through verse 20 just to get this in our head. Jesus is supreme in new creation. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That word means supreme. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Another beautiful statement in this hymn about Jesus. What's the first thing Paul wants us to know? That Jesus is the head of the body, the church. When we launched this church, we did some sort of preview services. This is a passage I went to because I was like, what's the thing I want to be about? I want to be about Jesus. And one of our talks was Jesus is the head of the body, the church. What does that mean? It means he's in charge. He's over the church, the body, us. What is the church? If you go to the Bible and try to define church in sort of a black and white, logistical sort of way, the Bible doesn't do a great job of giving you a clear definition. Here's what the church is. It gives you parameters and leadership, stuff like that. It mostly spends time describing what the church is like. It's like the new humanity of God. It's like the family of God. It's the people of God. It's the restored uh, people of God. It's the priesthood of all believers. It's this. The number one image God gives us through his word is the church is the body. And here we see, and the head is Christ. 
So very practically, what does that mean? How is God getting any work done here on earth right now? Similar to how he originally wanted to get work done here on this earth. Genesis 1, God creates Adam and Eve. Creates them good, right, beautiful, and he gives them work to do. God does not want to be the one doing all the work on earth. He wants to have a co-regent is the theological, hey, let's work together. And what is he, how did he describe them? Uh, Genesis 1, I'll just read it over you. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That was our original job, is to bless the earth, fill the earth, subdue the earth, have dominion, rule the earth as God's co-regents. And what does Adam do? He's like, are you guys in on this? Yeah, sounds great. High five. And Delo, high five. Anthony told us to do both. Yes, let's get to work. And God's like, just don't eat. Just that one right there. We good? Yeah, we're good. All right, I'm going to go walk over here for a little bit. And God walks back to them and takes the keys to the car and says, I got to redo this. I'm not going to wipe the slate clean, but I'm going to redo this. Adam, you weren't up to the task. I'm going to send a new Adam one day who I'm going to give the keys back to. And in Ephesians, this is how Paul describes that new king. And he put all things under his feet, talking about Jesus, and gave him as head over all things to the church. How is the earth being blessed currently? By Jesus, who is a head, and his body, which in a weird, mystical, strange way, like the union of man and woman in marriage, is the body of Christ here on earth. Just very practically, like you guys in here. Me. That's stupid. I would never put me in charge of much. Like this AC thing dang near broke me. Friday morning, I'm like reading like, God, where are you? Ah, I'm reading Job like, I have the worst life ever. Psalm, what psalm is going to fill some trust in chariots? I'm like, I don't trust you, God. I, what is going on? And I'm the body. You're the body. How is the world going to be blessed? Jesus the head and the body of the church. We don't provide authority or direction, but we do the work that the authority and the direction gives us. So Jesus tells us how, when, why, and we listen. And there's a beautiful freedom in that, and there's also a sort of angst-filled, but that leaves me out of control, which some of us are like experiencing ma major ways. Like if Jesus is the head, he's the one who says go, He's the one who says stop. And the worst option you can get as a follower of Jesus is wait or not now. Or you're not ready for this. I'll tell you later. But Paul says, hey, he is the head of the body. We don't have to figure this out. We just got to be faithful as the body of Christ. That's beautiful. Here's the next thing it says about him. If that's verse 18, he's the body of the church. Next thing, in the very middle section of verse 18, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. Revelation, the apostle John describes Jesus this way. He is the alpha 
and the omega. He is the first and the last. He is the first. He is uncreated. He is before creation. He is the first and he's the omega, the last. He has the final word, the final say. We are waiting on him, the omega, to tell us when this all gets restored and renewed. He is the beginning and he is the firstborn from the dead. There's that word again, firstborn. Again, not the first to be raised out of his own grave. That happened a few times during his ministry. But he's the firstborn of the dead. What does that mean? All the Jews were on the same page with this particular thing. They were waiting for a Messiah. And what was the Messiah going to do? He was going to restore all things. In their mind, a lot of it meant Israel back to prominence and all these other nations kind of subdued, which there's an element of that. But primarily it meant there was going to be a resurrection. There was going to be a resurrection from the dead and all things were going to be raised up and then we were going to serve and reign and rule under the Messiah, whoever that was. And they were all waiting for this moment. They were on the same page. Like those of you that are married in this room, I've been married 14 years, about to celebrate our 15th. There's times where we like look at each other and like, we are not on the same page. Like, I see it this way. And I've been married to you 15 years. How do you not see it my way? <laughs> Just so you know, with the Jewish train of thought, there was no like, oh, we're not on the same page here. They all wanted a resurrection. Here's what messed all of them up. Jesus did it differently than what they expected. They expected all of us raised bodily. And Jesus is the firstborn from the grave. He's the first to get resurrected. And they had no category for that. That's why when you talk to people that try to discount Christianity and the, the thing they try to camp out on is it was a man-made religion. The people of the day were just chomping at the bit to make this religion so they could gain power or whatever sort of narrative you want to fill in. That is hogwash. Because no Jews were on the same page with, and oh, by the way, we're going to have one singular resurrection first. They all thought it's going to be this major mass upheaval, like the rapture, those of you who love Left Behind series, that sort of deal. But it was Jesus, the firstborn from the grave, and it blew their mind. So much so, the Apostle Paul is like a trained Jewish leader. He's spending time killing Christians. Jesus meets them on the road to Damascus. Paul, why are you doing this? Loves them, cares for them. Paul gets saved in that moment, and what does Paul do? He doesn't immediately go to get to work starting churches. The Bible says he spent about 14 years off studying. Why? If he missed the resurrection like everyone else, he had a lot of dots to connect before he became the chief dot connector for the New Testament we now have. But here's the dot that he wants connected for the church, Colossae and us. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. We have hope that there is a resurrection because we see it in Jesus. It's like the ultimate. My kids are in a variety of sports. I think the sport they'll end up loving most is soccer, which just tears me apart, but whatever. <laughs> soccer has stoppage time. I'm still trying to figure out all the rules. Stoppage time is like, the game's over. Eh, not really. And we're waiting for some guy behind the screen to tell us, like, and you're going to have an additional 27 minutes and six seconds, and then you get to play on because we wasted that time in the game. Like, all the other sports figure this out. You stop the clock, but soccer has not figured this out. <laughs> but stoppage time. The resurrection is the ultimate. Like, what's after this game? Never-ending life in a resurrected body with Jesus. And I know that to be true because I know him who is the firstborn from the grave as a seal, as a promise, as a foretaste, as a preview to the movie that we all get invited into 
one day. Church, you need to remember this. What else does Paul say? Next thing he says is Jesus is also the fullness of God here on earth. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Pause right there. This could be my favorite just statement in this whole section. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Who is Jesus? Another way to think about him is he is the fullness of God who dwells among us. Like, who's the greatest person in your life right now? Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a father, a mother, a friend. This says Jesus is the fullness of God and he dwells among us. Like that garden story, when we ate the fruit we shouldn't have eaten, what did God immediately do? He kicked us out of his presence. Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. Angels put up, posted up to keep them out so they would not go back to the same trees that started this whole mess. And now God's presence starts to get more and more and more distant. But God, in the meantime, is making this plan to dwell with his people. He says, Jewish people, I'm going to dwell with you. And he gives them this plan, create this tent, this tabernacle. And in the center of it is going to be the Holy of Holies, where my presence dwells. So think about it. In this universe that we know 4% of, for a moment, 3,000 years ago, where was the presence of God in this vast universe that none of us will ever fully understand? It was in the Holy of Holies for this little tribal backwoods Jewish group that was sort of the laughingstock of the day and age, but they had the presence of God right there. And what was the presence of God doing? It was making atoning sacrifice for the sins of the Jewish people. And then this guy Jesus shows up, and John's trying to explain him. And in the beginning of John's gospel, he says, the word was with us, and the word dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the same word tabernacle. The presence of God that the Jews once knew is now here, and it's in the person of Jesus. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There is no better truth that you will find out there. No amount of money, no promotion, no sort of, as you think about just all that could happen in your life good, all that might happen in your life that you hope doesn't, like we all have that. We project out to varying degrees, like what's it going to be like? Is my marriage getting better? I can't tell. We don't know a lot of those answers, but we know this. Paul says, the fullness of God is here to dwell, and his name is Jesus, and he's here with us by faith. That is beautiful. And what is he doing? Final truth of Jesus we see here, verse 20. As he came to dwell among us, verse 20, here's what Jesus is primarily doing in the moment now. And through him, that's still Jesus is the subject, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus is the reconciler of all things back to himself. He did not just create it and watch it from a distance. He is now in the middle of it, and he is reconciling, restoring all things. What does that mean? I don't fully know what it means, but it means more than what my mind allows me to think. He is really restoring all things. Harmony, shalom is the, the Jewish word for peace, will be back. Why? Because he is restoring all things. There is coming a moment where creation will sing in harmony again. Like one of the, I just got this beautiful email from this guy that visited this church. He's like, I have not been with a church that sings that loud before. And we sing loud. And we sing kind of good. Because I hear me. And Jim, Aubrey, get out of here. But Chandler's like, you know, it'd be great if we taught like a harmony class. Why do we need a harmony class? Because we don't know how to have harmonies. One day, 
everything will be in harmony. And as we look around, they're like, who do we give credit? Is it Ch- Jesus says, I am reconciling all things back to myself. Everything that was broken in Genesis is your relationship with God was broken, Adam and Eve. That's his spread to every person that has ever come after them. Your relationship with each other is broken. Adam and Eve immediately got in a fight as sin entered the world. Your relationship with creation is broken. They, cancer's here. There's earthquakes here. There's all this damage in, because the earth is now cursed because of us. And our relationships to ourself, like they immediately look down and they're ashamed and full of guilt and fear and shame. Where's that come from? The brokenness that we brought in this world. What is Jesus doing? He's restoring and reconciling all things. How? By making peace by the blood of his cross. That is amazing news. And that right there is the end of the song that Paul wanted this church to know before he got into details. Now, what does Paul do after wrapping up this beautiful hymn? He could have done a few things. This is a lot of times what Paul does. He's like my charismatic friends. He just busts into prayer and praise you, God, for this, 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 this. Paul's also a teacher, a rabbi. He could have turned and then said, let's talk about this now. Instead, Paul sort of says, like, the song that I just sung, the song that you just read implicates all of you. If Jesus is supreme in creation and Jesus is supreme in new creation, that means something for every single person. We're not singing about a geographical king. We're singing about the king of the universe. And he turns his attention to the church at Colossae and he just reminds them that they're included in this good news of the supremacy of Jesus. Verse 21, let's read it. Song over. Now Paul wants to just remind them, and you... Colossi, you, Redemption North Mountain, who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled. Pause right there. What's the word used to describe what has been done by Jesus for us? The word is reconciled. If I tell you, hey, me and Aubrey reconciled, like, what was wrong? Because reconcile implies there's a problem and there's a break in the relationship. You're like, oh, I wonder what happened. And Paul says, hey, you were reconciled, which means we were part of the broken world that God had to restore and to reconcile. Well, how, how were we a part of that broken world? He says, you were alienated, you were out of my presence, you were hostile in mind, and you were doing evil deeds. And I was thinking about this, it was just bouncing around my head yesterday. Hostile in mind describes everybody from Hitler to the most sweet on the surface person in this room who has any sort of gossipy, twisted nature about them. Paul would say, we were all alienated, hostile in mind. None of us naturally use our minds to serve and love God and serve and love others. And we were apart from him. And we were doing evil deeds. You're like, well, evil where my deeds were. I don't know, but evil is not what I want to be called. And that was us, church. But what did Jesus do as he's reconciling all things, making peace by the blood of the cross? Verse 22, this is what Jesus has done for us, and this is why we sing so loud to Jesus. He has now reconciled. How? Did he sign a document? Did he wave a wand? No. In his body of flesh, the supreme creator of all things. All things are through him, by him, for him. He came down to earth 
by, in his body of flesh, by his death. The Supreme Lord died for us. Why? In order to present us holy, blameless, and above reproach. Who else in this world has the power and the love and the grace to call us holy? It means more than just I don't curse. It means you are uniquely set apart for a unique purpose in this world by the creator himself. You are holy. We are holy and blameless. No one can stick an accusation that sticks if we have Jesus. Like Satan himself cannot write a big enough accusation to place on our lives that will ever stick if we have Jesus. Why? Because we are blameless because of the blood of the cross. And we are above reproach. How's this happen? Verse 23. One way, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, and do not shift your hope from the gospel that you have heard. That's our job as a church. Gather up Sundays, gather up RCs, gather up on our families, gather up with our spouses, gather up with whoever's around us in kids' ministry, and let's not shift from the gospel. Let's not get legalistic. Let's not get weird and whatever America's into right now. Let's not shift from the gospel. That's what we need. What is the gospel? That Jesus is reconciling all things. He's really doing the work. We have a future hope that one day everything will be back in harmony. And there's a present reality to the gospel. It says here, the only past tense one is you have been reconciled. Why? By his body of death, blood of his cross. That is the good news that Jesus did that for us. What do we all need? We need a grander vision of Jesus. So here's how I want to end. I just want to read that hymn over us again. So if you want to close your eyes, I just want to remind us of who Jesus is, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together as a church. Paul, tell us who Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God. He's firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Uh, we need more Jesus, Father, and you know that. That's why you even give us your word, because we are a short-sighted, fragile, forgetful, scared, anxious bunch. So we need you. So thank you for this letter to the Colossians. Thank you for Paul and just the beautiful vision of Jesus he gives us in this passage. I God, I pray that these words would be more than just lofty words that we heard in a sermon, but they would be words that we take individually by faith and grab hold of and wrestle with and fight to believe this week in very real, tangible ways in all the areas of life where we need to be reminded that you are supreme, that by all things, for all things, and through all things, it's all you. 
and you are now reconciling all things, making peace by the blood of the cross. So, Father, give us a bigger, more beautiful, more true, more hearty vision of Jesus. It's in your son's name we pray.